The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Good to see you back for the second part of my conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer about anxiety, bad habits, and addiction. So as I would bike to the hospital, it just started feeling so good just to be offering every person I saw just a silent wish of well-being. You know, may you be happy, whatever. May you be may well. Maybe, yes, may you be well. Yes. And I would get to the hospital and my colleagues would be like, man, what are you smoking? I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to. Talking about addiction. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. Self-kindness. Let me, let me drill into that a little bit more, if I may, because how difficult is it for your general patient for, you know, for, I don't want to generalize, but still, I wonder how easy it is for Joe Bloggs to really feel that kindness, that understanding, especially if they've been working against a bad habit or even an addiction over and over again, you know, tripping up, slipping up. This is what you say in your app. I go tripping up, slipping up, effing up because that really completes kind of my picture. If I go, I go overboard. And then to feel uh, as an antidote to this self-loathing or shame that you've broken again what you committed to, you know, to say, it's okay. <laughs> You're not so bad. You know, um, it's, you know, you will get there. I mean, that's really difficult, especially if you aspire or expect certain things from you. Yes, it can be really challenging, especially if it's a, if self-judgment is a deep-seated habit. So I, I agree with you. It's hard to generalize, but I can speak from my own experience. <laughs> yes, do. <laughs> do. I really struggled with, with kindness. And there's a particular mindfulness practice called loving kindness. I struggled with that for a long time, for years. And it was, it was actually only when I, I remember in residency training, I would ride my bicycle to the hospital. And when cars would honk at me for whatever reason, you know, I might give them the universal sign of displeasure or, you know. Like you, know, you mean like this, hello, I, I know I, you that, too. <laughs> that's, that's not exactly how I was <laughs> reacting at that time. But I remember getting to the hospital, feeling all closed, contracted, you know, and I was thinking this is not a good mental space to be in when I start seeing patients. So I started practicing. I used the honks as a mental mindfulness bell where somebody honked and I would just offer myself a phrase of kindness, like maybe happy. And then I would offer them a phrase of kindness. It had to be genuine. This can't just be, you know, and, but it's not that hard to just wish somebody well silently, not expect, you know, it's like, oh, maybe somebody had a bad day or, you know, maybe I really did get in front of their car or whatever, you know? So the, I started doing that and I realized that I would get to the hospital and I would just be in a much better place. And that in itself made me realize, wait a minute, I don't have to wait for somebody to honk at me to practice loving kindness. So as I would bike to the hospital, it just started feeling so good just to be offering every person I saw, just a silent wish of well-being. You know, may you be happy, whatever. May you be may well. Maybe, yes, may you be well, yes. 
Mm-hmm. And I would get to the hospital and my colleagues would be like, man, what are you smoking? I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to. Talking about addiction. Right? No. So it, it's not easy, but we all know what kindness bestowed upon us feels like. People have been kind, you know, people have been kind to us in our lives. We can start right there. You know, we can just remember what it's like when somebody's been kind to us. And that remembrance brings back that snapshot where our picture says, oh yeah, that's, you know, our brain says that's rewarding. It's taken a picture of that before. We can use that as a way to, to tap into that. And then we can just play with little ways to just be kind to ourselves. Something, you know, giving ourselves, sometimes it's as simple as just putting our hand on our heart. You know, for some people that's helpful, others not so much, but just saying, you know, oh, you know, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Or doing some gesture to ourselves that comes on the heels of remembering what it's like for others to be kind to us, right? And from there, we tap into how good it feels. We can tap into how genuine it can feel so that the, the fakeness, you know, just the discomfort of something new, right? Because our brains, when they're not used to something, trying a new habit or a new behavior is going to feel uncomfortable as we move into that growth zone. So finding ways that we can just tap into that over and over and over then helps establish that as a new habit. Yeah. And that is where your app is fabulous because, you know, for me to do this step when I just clearly in my own mind failed in my endeavor to then just sit back and say, oh, it's okay. I still love myself. Actually, I love myself even more because I show a human side or whatever. So I tap into the app and I do go into the, you know, uh, loving kindness section where, where, where you basically take your patients, your clients into a mantra, into a chant. And it does, you know, a thought does then trigger certain chemicals in your body or certain feeling. Uh, and then of course triggers, uh, you know, uh, the, the reward that you say, okay, it's okay. And you can move on. But to dig that out naturally by yourself or by yourself is, uh, yeah, it's outside, it's outside the comfort zone, even though it feels good, you know, um, it is outside the comfort zone and not easy. Yes. And at, at the beginning, I just want to highlight something you said at the beginning of doing anything new, it's not going to feel good because our ancient brain is back out on the savannah saying, hey, this is new territory. I don't know if it's safe or not. So it can take a little while for us to start to feel that something is safe. I'll give you an example. Back to the patient I was talking about. Yeah. You know, over the, the course of his treatment, you know, the next five or six months, his anxiety went down a lot. So this gentleman had been anxious for about 30 years. He didn't know what it was like not to be anxious And he came into a clinic visit and said, you know, I'm feeling significant periods of peace, of calm and whatever. And it feels strange. I feel anxious that I'm not anxious. And so we worked through that, that new territory space where, you know, I explained him, well, this is how our brains work. They say, this is unfamiliar. This is new territory. Is it safe? And he could actually see, oh yeah, not only is it safe, but it feels much better than being anxious. And it just took him a little while to habituate to not being anxious. Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance. And let's get back to the conversation. 
I think that is so interesting because the the primal brain, you know, the basal ganglia, if if I get it right, it, and and fear in general, this anxiety is something positive. It is something to protect us, and unless we have all the information and we face unknown, we will be scared and we will be thinking negative thoughts, negative, uh, you know, thinking loops. They catch us to protect us to pre- but they do of course that is the other side of being able then to grow and to push through right yes well and this is where I, I, i'm just wondering where in general you say if you face yourself with a with a um, you know anxiety anxiety disorder accept it and with the, you know, in the in the craving mind, you go very much into uh, rain. You call it rain. Maybe you want to, uh, you know, explain what that um, what rain actually means. And it filters very much into any kind of bad habit or undesired um, undesired behavior once display as a, as a technique, which I think is tremendously effective. This is an acronym, so this falls into that third step category of finding the bigger, better offer. And this was something that I had learned. It's a great acronym that I had learned relatively early in my own meditation practice. So I think it was first developed by a a Western meditation teacher, Michelle McDonald, and and Tara Brock had very, very much popularized it. And the way that it worked is that R stands for recognize, right? We have to recognize basically that we're in a habit loop. If we're lost, we're not going to be able to change any behavior. The A is about allowing or accepting that whatever it is. So instead of saying, oh, that's uncomfortable, I don't like that anxiety, I want it to go away, really saying, okay, here it is, right? I This is what's happening. Can I be with it? I love this phrase, you know, the only way out is through. And so we we have to we have to work with whatever's coming up to to be able to to change our relationship to it. So that A stands for allow or accept. The I stands for investigate. And this is, you can think of curiosity as that attitude of being willing to turn toward and investigate what's actually happening. The N is, at first, has been described as non-identification, which can seem like a challenge, at least for me as a beginner or for folks I'm trying to teach you know, meditation to for the first time. What does non-identification mean? So I actually substituted something that I had learned called noting practice. This was mm. out of Southeast Asia, uh, popularized by a Burmese teacher, Mahasi Saido. And the idea with noting is that when we are observing something, so this goes back to physics, the observer effect, right? So by observing so they were studying electrons, the mass of electrons, and they would use photons to measure the mass. But they found that the photons would affect the mass because they had basically had to hit the electron with the photon. So they, it, the physicists said, well, by observing, we're actually affecting the result of the experiment. That's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, we can use this to our advantage in, you know, in, our, in our mind, in, in psychological sciences, because when we are identified, you can think of it as being identified with a thought, it takes us, you know, it can yank us around. But if we can observe it by noting what it is, so, oh, there's a thought or there's a tightness or there's tension or there's burning. If we can note the body sensations, if we can note the emotions, we are, by observing, we are no longer as identified with the thought, the emotion, the body sensation. So what I teach people to use is that RAIN practice where the, they start, you know, recognize, for example, in our first studies that we use this is smoking, 
And by the way, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment within this study. So it, it worked pretty well. Yep. So recognize that they have a craving, allow it to be there, get curious, huh, what does this feel like in my body? And then note from moment to moment what those sensations were, where they could watch that craving come and go and realize that they didn't need to smoke. They didn't need to act on it. People can use the same thing for a food craving where they don't, you know, if they're bored and they have an urge to eat some food, they can just note that. They can use the RAIN exercise to ride out that craving. And people can use the RAIN exercise to ride out uh, you know, feelings of anxiety and worry. So yeah. it's not, not that they're, it's going to magically make them disappear, but it can help us change our relationship to those two thoughts, emotions, body sensations, so that even when they do come up, we're not as reactive to them. Yeah. And, and that is, I think, is the most important moment is really where you ride out the craving. Because if you have a craving for whatever, even if it's just, you know, I want to think about this again and again and again, it's kind of like a craving, how to ride it out. And I wonder to what extent really this, this, this mechanism is taking us from this uncontrolled behavior, which the craving can really trigger, just going and smoking or taking the drugs or the food to, you know, get it back into our rational brain and then through these techniques, keep it there. And then say, actually, I don't need it. But without this technique, you would just be, you know, in the chocolate box and five minutes later, you would wake up as of a dream and say, what just happened did not happen or did it happen? And um, it, is, it is this kind of moment, this restraint moment, this pause that is so critical. That really is like the sliding door film. It, it, it changes your life in that moment. So the pause can be helpful, but I will also say that the pause is not critical. So here it might be counterintuitive, but this is what the second step is all about. So if we do the behavior and we just go ahead with the behavior, we can still bow to that as a teacher and learn from it, right? So if somebody smokes a cigarette, that's when they actually update that reward value in their brain, when they realize, oh, if they pay attention, they realize it tastes like crap. Or if they overeat, great, you just overate. Don't beat yourself up over it. You know, if you couldn't restrain yourself, just feel into what it feels like. It just reminds me of the, the movie Chocolat. Do you mm -hmm. remember that? Yeah, movie? of course. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. The, the mayor of that town, so this is a town in France, you know, and the, the mayor was practicing restraining from eating chocolate for Lent. And he, he was able to restrain himself for just so long. And then he got really stressed out, basically. And he went and <laughs> he broke into the chocolatier that the, uh, I think is uh, Binochet's character, yes. you know, the, the female heroine had a, a, a chocolate uh, um, store. And he just like ate with reckless abandon and he passes out in the, you know, in the, and the priest finds him the next morning, right? <laughs> Where he's, he's just passed out. So it's not about pausing and forcing ourselves to pause. It's about paying attention. And before we pause, really just paying attention when we do the behavior, which can then eventually help us move into that third step where we can then pause more, investigate what those cravings feel like and not feel like it's it's a forced march to, to make ourselves not eat or not smoke or not whatever. I think that's a really critical distinction. I think this is so important because at the end of the day, when we have a craving, 
it seems to me most of the time we are looking for a mood shifter. We're in a situation we don't feel quite good and a situation of even being bored is boring. You know, it's, it doesn't feel good. So you look for a mood shifter, an instant one, instant gratification. Yes. So you just go that way. And I wonder, it, because it's fun, it's better than what you have right now. And the BBO of what you were describing before might not be necessarily so fun as going and binging out on chocolate in a chocolate shop. Well, in the moment, I have to say any of my patients who have binged in those moments, the binging, they never describe the binging as fun. You know, uh, if somebody goes in parties to excess, you know, in that moment where they're drunk or they're high or whatever, you know, if they can remember it, they might've felt like there was this excitement to it, but the next morning generally doesn't feel very good. So if we look at the whole composite reward value, it becomes pretty clear to people, you know, do they want to be a slave to their craving or do they want to actually have quote unquote control over their mind where they can see, oh, here's a craving. Is it worth doing this? Right? There's the pause. They can reflect back on the last time (laughs) they did it And then they can see, do I want to do this again? I have a number of patients in my clinic who do this every morning where they reflect on what it was like to, you know, have been drunk and what's it like this morning when they wake up sober without a hangover. And one of my patients has been sober over a year now after, you know, decades and decades and decades of drinking where she recognizes that, you know, it took her a long time. But this, this, she attributes just this awareness, this recollection of, you know, what would it, what would it, what would that comparison be, you know, to be drunk versus being sober? And to her, it's a no brainer. She said it's, it's been effortless in that sense. Well, that's great. That is actually effortless because I was about to ask you, is uh, an alcoholic always just an alcoholic that is dry? Uh, is a perfectionist just an, a perfectionist that is dry, not slaving around wanting to be a perfectionist? And, uh, or is it really something that you can eradicate forever? I would say, you know, our brains are our brains and our brains are set up to learn, right? So this, this process, we don't want this learning process to go away <laughs> because we'll stop learning, we'll stop adapting. What we do, uh, what we can do is change our relationship to our thoughts and emotions and cravings in particular. So, you know, if we can learn that we are, you know, that we may always have cravings, but typically those cravings tend to die off when, when our brain says, meh, it's not that exciting for me to smoke or to drink or whatever anymore. So, you know, they might pop up here and there, but for a lot of folks, and we've actually done a study that shows this with smoking, that that craving dies off over time as we, you know, as we stop doing the behavior, as we become disenchanted. Doesn't mean that that circuitry isn't there. And it's important for that circuitry to be there so we can continue to learn and grow throughout our lives. It's really about learning to change our relationship so that we can work with whatever comes our way. Right. Go ahead, sorry. There's a saying in the Tao Te Ching that this reminds me of where uh, it talks about, you know, the mark of a moderate man or moderate person is freedom from his own ideas, I think is the translation, where he talks about being supple like a tree in the wind, firm like a mountain. And it says something like, you know, there is nothing he can't do for he has let go, right? So if we let go of trying to control our cravings and just see them as phenomena that arise and pass, gives us tremendous freedom. 
it's tremendous freedom. And it brings me to the question, it's just, the, a thing is a thing, a thought is a thought. It really is the value we attach to it. The focus, do we actually hear it? And then the value, is it important to us or not? And this is where the relationship comes into it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, okay, so why do people fall back then? Why do they all of a sudden, having been sober for years, uh, fall back into drinking, smoking, um, going down the, you know, the burger road rather than staying on the lettuce? Here I would say, and I'm thinking back to the scientific literature as well, because there is a fair amount of research on this. The biggest, one of the biggest predictors of relapse for anything is basically stress, right? And that probably goes back to people learning these behaviors in stressful situations. So often people who use drugs or alcohol have had chaotic childhoods or they've had parents that had, you know, kind of modeled that type of behavior for them. And so they'd kind of learned this at a young age and, you know, to drink when you're stressed, if that's the only mechanism you know, then you're going to learn that pretty strongly. And of course, all of these things jack the dopamine system, making it, you know, really uh, deeply ingrained. So here, you know, I think the, that, that stress is probably one of the big reasons that people relapse and is born out in the literature. And at the same time, if we don't know how our minds work, we can't actually be ready to work with them in those moments. So if we've just quit smoking cold turkey or quit drinking cold turkey or whatever, we've kind of done it white knuckling and, you know, we've made it. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like there's this, this fragility to that if we still don't know how our mind, mind works. And so I've had a, lo a lot of patients who've, you know, they've been gotten sober somehow or gotten clean from drugs somehow. And then they come back in and they say, oh, you know, I was really, I had a, a financial or a divorce or whatever, you know, something very stressful for them. And the only thing their brain knew how to do in that moment was say, oh, go back to using whatever you did. So here, I think people relapse because they just don't know how to work with their own minds. And if we can train people to actually work with their minds, you know, whatever comes their way, no matter how difficult it is, it doesn't mean things are never going to be difficult, but they'll know how to work with them. Yes. And I think that the, uh, the entire mindfulness is exactly so important in these moments because it is, you know, you're clean, you come from the priory, you get back into your old environment, trigger, 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 trigger. You see the old friends, trigger, 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 because this is more or less, I don't want to say after 20 years of smoking or 30 years of smoking, that somehow a habit is, you know, epigenetically expressed and part of you. And I think this is where it really becomes very, very difficult to, to eradicate and not even see the traces um, after being clean or for, clean for long enough. Um, it, it's a tough one. Um, by the way, I, what I love about your new book is the mindfulness personality type questionnaire. Do you want to know what I am? What, what, <laughs> yes, is your guess? what is your guess from knowing me for the last 58 minutes? I would guess the uh, the greedy faithful type. No, I'm All avoid. Right. What's I'm, that? I'm avoid. Avoid. Okay, so you and I share that same characteristic. Oh, do we? Well, this is what you were saying when you. I saw it in, a, in an interview. You said I I'm addicted to overthinking, and mm. um, I said, oh, that resonates with me. I'm always overthinking. I'm trying to make sure, and the reason why I try to make sure is I want everything just to be 
perfect. And for me to recognize that 80-20 is perfect enough, and so we are enough, I'm going to put you and I in one boat, it's not easy. It's not easy. And you do struggle because you want to just spot on. <laughs> oh, Dr. Judd, thank you so much for, for this discussion. As a last question, what are the three key learnings you want to give anybody that struggles with anxiety they have to think about and endorse before even you know trying to see whether it's anxiety that drives their behavior or their emotional state? The first thing I would say is, you are okay. <laughs> you know, remind oh, Marisa yourself. Peer, you are right. enough. Right, right. Now, there's a reason that that's kind of, you know, farcical and, you know, people, you know, kind of say that tongue in cheek, but it's, it's actually true because if we can't, if we're so caught up in anxiety, we're not going to be open to learning. So that's the first step is we have to be able to open a little bit to learning. And one of the simplest ways to remind ourselves that we can be open to learning is to remind ourselves that, you know, ask ourselves, am I okay in this moment? Right. And, and we generally are okay in this moment. Right. So create that foundation for being open to learning. The second is to map out your mind, you know, understand how your mind works. And the more we can map our mental habit loops out, the more we can see all the different ways that are that we are acting unconsciously or on automatic pilot. And then that gives us the space to be able to step out of them. So I would say map your mind. And the I guess the last thing I would say is really explore, you know, whatever the habit is, whether it's worry or overeating or smoking or whatever, ask yourself, what am I getting from this? And then see if you can find that intrinsic bigger, better offer, whether it's kindness or curiosity or a combination of both. And then I would say rinse and repeat. <laughs> rinse and repeat. What does rinse mean? As in like wash it off and do it again? There's a saying in English, you know, rinse and repeat. It's kind of like when you do something, you know, it's like um, you, 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 you basically repeat the cycle over and over. So I would say just repeat uh, to make sure everybody understands. Yeah, just repeat the cycle so that we can develop kindness and curiosity as our new habits. Love it. Love it so much. Dr. Judd, thank you so much for being with me here on Mentory TV, with our community on Mentory TV. I, uh, I know it's going to be another bestseller, Unwinding Anxiety, that book. I enjoyed it, read it page to page. And yes, <laughs> um, uh, so many things that are based also on the craving mind. I think this one was even translated into 16 different languages, an absolute, an absolute um, you know, bestseller and the apps you have developed. Um, I use them. I still use them for my issues. And people like you really are so pivotal to people like everybody, like me, like everybody. So thank you. And thanks for having me. And thank you, my dear Mentory TV community, for having joined me yet again for a conversation, this time with Dr. Judd Brewer, the expert when it comes to, well, addiction and how to manage with your anxiety, depression, and all the other mental irregularities, let's say it that way. So make sure to not only enjoy this conversation, but get these books, try to really be curious, and let's improve. See you soon. Bye. 
I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.